You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who could totally be a venture capitalist. Let's see, I have $20 billion in my wallet. Who's got a startup? But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know around the tech industry. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is someone I've had in the red chair before, Ben Horowitz, the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, which is one of the most influential venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. He's also the author of several books, Books, including the brand new book, What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. It's one of many books he's written, and we're going to talk about that and more. Ben, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, Kara. Thank it's you for having me here. at your stunning headquarters in Silicon Valley. We're yeah. in the belly of the beast. We've talked a lot before, but I wanted to sort of people to get who you are just very mm-hmm. quickly, and then we'll talk about the new book and, and how they differ from the old ones and stuff like that. So let's start with a very short bio, Ben Horowitz. Okay, well, does. you know, I, I grew up in uh, the People's Republic of Berkeley, uh-huh. uh, and I uh, went to school in New York at Columbia, and then became an engineer, then became a CEO, uh, had a company that did um, really well, then really badly, then mm-hmm. really well. That's where <laughs> uh, we met. Yep. And then uh, we started the firm Andreessen Horowitz. Mark All right. And I, yeah. So talk about a little bit about the founding of Andreessen Horowitz, because things have changed a lot. You guys sort of started venture capital to try to change venture capital, and then mm-hmm. it's changed a lot since then. A couple, SoftBank and others have come in. Yeah. And we can talk yeah. about that in a minute. Sure. But, um, but talk a little bit about how you guys thought about and how it's changed over the years from your perspective, from what you guys were setting out to do. Yeah. So, you know, when we started, um, we kind of caught it at the right time because it hadn't changed. Venture capital is very much like it was when you funded Tandem or some of the uh, great old companies of yesteryear. And uh, it was getting much, much easier to start a company and easier for, or you had a longer time as a founder to learn to be a CEO. So we kind of created a firm that would basically enable a founder to be a CEO rather than replace the founder with a CEO. Mm -hmm. And that was a Big change. And we kind of organized the whole firm around that. In particular, um, we built this giant network so that as a founder, you would feel like a professional CEO with a big network of, you know, people who knew every customer, people who knew everybody in the press, people who knew all the uh, people to raise money from. And that kind of changed, I would say, venture capital professionalized it a lot. And so you kind of saw the kind of firms that weren't really ready to be professional go away and then firms that were very kind of strong like Sequoia 
step up and add a lot of those capabilities. So the idea was, as I recall, adding value to it and also a lot of money, a lot more money, a lot more big bets. Yeah. So, you know, we we also thought that um, the key with tech companies is like when something becomes a franchise, it's always a good idea to invest in it. So we weren't so focused on the stage Mm -hmm. was another kind of significant change. In terms of when you invested and how much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'd go seed, we'd go kind of a round, we would go growth. Uh, One of our first deals was in uh, Skype, buying Skype out Mm -hmm. of eBay. And that was a deal. Yeah. Everybody, (laughs) we got a lot of criticism for it, but it turned out to be pretty good. Because then you turned around and sold it to Microsoft. Yeah. Yeah. 18 months later. Yeah. Which was great. But the concept was, the, the this I think at the time either Mark or you said this isn't your dad's venture capital or something like that. <laughs> yeah, Mark probably said that. Mark did say that. Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah. You're not that obnoxious. Um, and so as it progressed over the years, though, SoftBank comes in or mm-hmm. other big different investments. Different, different ideas. Yeah. So what is changing that? And I do want to get your book, but I want to talk about where you think venture capital is because that happened mm-hmm. with enormous amounts of money, and I I yeah. can't imagine that wasn't to your liking what was going on there. Uh, well, you know the. With SoftBank, they're kind of, we see them as more kind of a substitute for what the public markets used to be. So unfortunately, um, due to just the way the regulation went, uh, many fewer companies go public than ever have before. Mm -hmm. It's very complicated and dangerous. And uh, so SoftBank kind of was an investment firm that was stepping in that void that used to be public. And so, you know, we didn't find them that community. We have a bunch of joint investments with them, uh, you know, in Improbable, and they they had money in Slack and some others. So it wasn't, you know, they kind of invest alongside us. I don't know how their model is going to do. I think that's probably a bigger question. But generally, since we started, there's just a lot more money. Everywhere. Yeah, private money everywhere, which I think is good for kind of good for society, good for the country. Like it's, I'd much rather see entrepreneurs who don't deserve funding get funding than yeah, ones who do not get it. funding. You know, yeah, it's yeah. A, and a lot it's of kind them of do, a, Ben. It's a great, you know, wealth transfer from, you know, rich people to entrepreneurs. It's fine. So, you know, so I want to, the reason jobs. I want to set the table for this book is where do you see the state is? There's not as, you know, there's delayed IPOs, which you just said dangerous. I want you to talk about mm-hmm. that. Secondly, many fewer startups or, or you, you're seeing, I want to sort of where you think the startup scene has moved to. No, I think there's a tremendous amount of startups. I mean, if just look at our volume and right. like what we see. So I think, um, I, I just think they're different. So when we started, the kind of big categories were cloud computing, social networking, and mobile computing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, mobile computing and social networking are pretty gone as categories for venture capital. Right. Um, but there's many new categories, crypto, computational biology, um, SaaS continues to grow and do well. There's mm-hmm. a lot of new things uh, on the infrastructure side. FinTech is explosive in terms of the number of new companies in it. Mm-hmm. So just moved a lot. So to, what has that changed in this in the landscape of company formation? Well, I mean, I think that, and I'm not sure if I completely understand the I question. I want to get an idea of what the landscape is for a startup now. It's just the shifting types of things you're investing in or that... Yeah, it's a shifting types of things. But like, I think right now, like it's still... Like if you can't raise money now, you have real issue. <laughs> because? <laughs> it's, you know, on a historical basis, I think it's quite easy to raise money. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, if you have a credible idea, if you have any kind of momentum in the business and so forth, there's tons of investors out there and, and lots and lots of money. So uh, all that is still working pretty well. I do think there, you know, there are some very kind of 
company-specific situations going on where, um, <laughs> you know, they got to... Look, anytime you get to a very high valuation and the business isn't working, i.e. the business isn't generating cash, mm-hmm. you're in a potentially dangerous spot because right. you're kind of selling equity in your company based on the promise of the future. But at some point, if the valuation gets too high and the view of the future changes, then right. you have a real issue. I think and you're I think that's happened. I think that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. Some other, you don't have to say it in particular. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they kind of have But in terms of having all this capital and moving it to other areas, mm-hmm. you all have shifted to these other areas much mm-hmm. more quickly than other people have. Yes. Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we're <laughs> kind of used to the, kind of being in a company cycle and you only in when product cycle's gone, you got to get to the next one. That's mm-hmm. how, how we view it. And and so yeah, we've moved pretty aggressively that on that. And I think some firms have, you know, they've kept the whatever, the same old people doing the same old things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, there's not as much to do then. And so you've said there's social networking and the and mobile are the two that you don't see as much investing in or you don't Yeah, see I mean as it's pretty promise. hard to win there. I mean like, you know, you can take on Facebook, um that doesn't sound fun or, you know, Uh Apple and Google. I mean, like, you know, and and then, you know, they have just such a clamp down on distribution on like, okay, yes, you can build a mobile app, but um, it's it's just way more difficult now. Uh, Those spaces are, they're just more difficult to invest in. And then when you look at the ones that you've been investing in, what are the ones you're most excited about? Um, Yeah, so like I, I, you know, AI is really um, super exciting right now. I think my... uh, you know, one of the companies I'm on the board of Databricks is uh, just like, it's just amazing the things that people are doing with it, the kinds of problems they're solving, um, and, uh, you know, just the quality of people going into the company. So, you know, that, that always spells a good area. Um, the crypto area is much newer, uh, but it's still like super interesting entrepreneurs, a lot of great ideas and so forth, and all, you know, brand new stuff, lots mm-hmm. of place to innovate. On the bio side, you know, I'm not as close to that at the firm, but the th- I mean, people come in, they're like, oh, we've cured cancer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're working on trials now. So that's, uh, it's actually in some ways a lot more fun for me than than social networking was. So in health, in the whole healthcare space. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of uh, climate change in that mm-hmm. area or energy or food. Yeah. So we don't do, or right. like as a firm, we, we don't invest in uh, that area mainly because one, we don't have the expertise, and then two, uh, you know, it hasn't been like an area that, at least from an investing standpoint, we've said, oh, wow, that's where all the opportunity is. Mm-hmm. And what about financial tech? Definitely, we're in there, big fintech. Talk about that it. a little bit. Yeah, so if you, well, one, <laughs> uh, we hit this wonderful point in the financial crisis where um, young people don't like banks or credit cards. Right. Because uh, they don't trust them, you know, and eh, with some good reason. Uh, so there's been just a great opportunity uh, to sell new uh, financial products, particularly to young people. Um, and we're seeing just a lot of motion there. There's also, you know, this huge portion of the population that doesn't even have a bank account. Mm-hmm. And so th- we, you know, we, we have a few companies in that area, one's called Propel, and they just started with a food stamp kind of. Uh, application where like food stamps, I didn't know this, but turn out to be horrible to use because you don't even know what your balance is. So you can go to the kind of grocery store and not even have the money to buy what you're trying to buy, which is like, it's already embarrassing enough. You get the food stamps and then that. And so they kind of take all of that away and get you your dignity back and make it easy to manage. But then they kind of bridge you to other kind of 
products that help you manage your finances. And then another one is Earnin, which basically gets you money. Like, so if I, you work at McDonald's or whatever, or, you know, any place that pays you by the hour, but you don't get paid until for two weeks and you need money four days into it, they'll just basically lend you the money interest-free mm-hmm. for the days you've already worked. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And what about self-driving and automation and robotics? Yeah, so we have a couple of things in the uh, autonomous uh, vehicle space. Yeah. One is uh, called Deep Maps AI, and another is called Applied Intuition, and they mm-hmm. um, kind of basically help people build autonomous vehicles. We spend a lot of time looking at that. I mean, I think that that one is an interesting one in that there's a it's kind of the biggest market imaginable and that is you know replaces um drivers yeah. <laughs> which is you know the kind of number one form of employment i think worldwide so you know there's a tremendous amount of money going in there's no actual businesses on the other end that are up and running yet so it's a it's a fascinating <laughs> in that sense from venture capital standpoint we don't know what it's going to be so in general you feel pretty good about the venture space right now in terms of its health and its ability to fund as many startups as there are oh yeah yeah i mean there's i mean you you see all like the tremendous amounts of money being raised um you know there's a million seed funds there's growth money you've got you know softbank with humongous checks for anything so how has your philosophy changed has it or is it the same as when you started? You know, it's the same. And I think the thing about venture capital is the best entrepreneurs will only raise money from the best firms Mm -hmm. or who they perceive to be the best firm. So if you're in that category, things don't really change that much just because there's more money coming in um, and that, you know, it's a competition among people like us that actually ends up affecting us if, you know, somebody goes and raises a lot of money, but they don't have a reputation that makes them top tier, then they don't effectively compete with us. Right, exactly. Um, So what was the background of then writing the book in Mm -hmm. the idea of culture? Because one of the things that's been really important to you, you've talked about it for a long, Mm -hmm. long time, is that idea of culture. Your last book was a lot about that too. Yeah, but I didn't really, you know, in the last book, I didn't really get into the depth of it. So to me, the culture is the most complicated thing in companies. Um, It's sort of, so why do people leave at five and not eight? Why does that employee return the phone call that day or next week? You know, do you care about the price of that deal or the partnership that you're trying to build? And these things, they're not in the mission statement. They're not in your OKRs or KPIs or, you know, any of that kind of thing. And so, like, how do you get people to behave the way you want them to behave when you're not there? It's Mm -hmm. really hard. And it gets much more complex as you scale. So, you know, easier at 20 people than it is at 10,000 for sure. And, you know, there's just in watching particularly the fast scaling or as Reid Hoffman would say, the blitz scaling companies, um, they lose that kind of cultural continuity or it gets away from them. They'll have something in the culture and then it'll become some monster that they didn't intend. And nobody, you know, I I felt like no CEOs I spoke to really had the tools or the framework for dealing with it. And it is kind of a, you need the gestalt of it. You can't just start with like, here are the three things you need to do to make your culture work. Like none of that works. Uh, So you have to kind of get into, okay, how how does the whole system operate? And that, that was the idea behind the book. And the idea of culture has been a big one in Silicon Valley, the idea that they all think they have 
cultures. Oh, yeah. You know, everybody thinks they've got it. And Our you know, I, I can't tell you how many times people have been like, oh, my culture is really good here. I'm like, what is it exactly? Yeah, what is it? What are they doing? Right. Like, how does it work? Right. Like, they how think do you, they have culture. Yeah, no, everybody thinks they have it. That's a, that's a good observation. And I think, um, you know, look, in their defense, they've done things to put it in place. Well, I feel kombucha is not culture, but go ahead. Yeah, no, exactly. Kombucha, dogs, yoga, dogs. like all that. Those are perks. Something. Yeah. It's something. Yeah. But but why is that the sense? Because many other companies... I actually feel like that's like a weird push. I always tell people who go like we have, you know, yoga and vegetarian food and kombucha. I'm like, well, you're just like anti-diversity. <laughs> I mean, you're right. not like, that's not a culture. That's just like a bunch of perks that guarantee you employees from one kind of background. That's all that is. Right. But why has that held the idea that culture is so important in Silicon Valley? Because other companies over decades have had it, but don't talk about it so incessantly. Well, one, like I think Intel was a real breakthrough. Mm -hmm. uh, and Intel sort of set the culture for Silicon Valley for many years. And it was a breakthrough in business culture. The way you did business was very, very different in Silicon Valley, starting with them. And, you know, you have to credit Bob Noyce for kind of coming up with the whole thing. But at that time, you know, you had these East Coast companies and they had parking spaces set aside for the executives, like super hierarchical to the point where the culture was so hierarchical that if somebody had an idea who was, you know, an individual contributor in the organization, even if they were the smartest person in the whole company, it just would never carry any mm -hmm. weight. And so and it was he, done that way in sort of a military military manner, correct? I mean, that's... Yeah, it was a little bit, you know, command and control yeah. is what we call it. And, uh, you know, he said, look, like we're building these breakthrough... The, the people designing an integrated circuit, these are some of the smartest people in the world. And I, I don't care if they're not an executive, like we need to listen to them. And so he redesigned the entire culture around that. And that became the culture of Silicon Valley. Of course, Silicon Valley forgot why those things were in place over the years. So a really great example is, you know, they had this casual dress policy and the reason for it was to kind of basically promote a meritocracy so that if I wasn't wearing like a $2,000 suit, suit right. you know, then I wouldn't intimidate you, not, you know, like it wouldn't be clear that my idea won. And so that's kind of where it came from. I think it's kind of morphed into just like, you know, whatever, wear your pajamas at work and so forth. And I think the bad side effect of not remembering where that came from is that now you've got this casual dress so people feel like, okay, maybe I'm like, it's like being at home. Mm -hmm. And maybe I can like drink a beer and maybe I can, you know, harass somebody or something like that. And then so you yeah. losing losing the why of the culture is very dangerous, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Intel set the tone of mm -hmm. that. And yes. then where did it go next? I think it evolved like mostly kind of, uh, and Hewlett Packard also had this, had a huge impact on it, kind of respect for the individual and the kind of the original organizational design where they had this tremendous autonomy for, you know, different groups working on different things. But I think the last, like, really big imprint on it um, has been Google to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, and they've, they introduced a lot of things that were very interesting, you know, kind of pushing it even further in terms of, like, anybody can have any opinion, even on what they work on, mm -hmm. um, you know, work on what you like. Although there was some of that in Intel, but not nearly to the degree that Google took it. Uh, and then, of course, the free lunches. Which, uh, <laughs> which are very good, by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about that and more when we get back here with Ben Horowitz. His book is called What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. He's a very well-known venture capitalist, and Andreessen Horowitz. When we get back, we're going to talk about what Google culture is and what it's done for the Valley mm -hmm. and more when we get back. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Ben Horowitz, the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz. He's written several books, What You Do is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. So talk a little bit about Google. And then I want to talk about sort of the things you talk about, how you create a culture. Mm-hmm. and, and how you, mm-hmm. Because, again, as we're talking about, everyone seems to want one or think that it's critical. Right. I always think right. the product is critical, but that's yeah. just me. But, yeah, no, um, the product is definitely more important. To me, um, yeah. But Google sort of sent it into the stratosphere, this idea of culture, the bikes, the lunches, the weird tents that they worked in, the yeah, purposely some of those, weird. Yes. Pur- I would say purposely weird. And some of those things I would say aren't so much culture as, you know, they wanted to create a university-like environment. Mm-hmm. and um, A college campus with money. Yeah, so it would keep kind of sprouting ideas. And so, like, I, they were very focused on what I call a culture of innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they did a lot of things around that. I don't, you know, I think, you know, it's like some of them worked and some of them didn't, obviously. Right. And then they had the greatest product in the history of the world from a cash generation standpoint. So mm-hmm. that, that whatever was good whatever or bad. Whatever they wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, it got, got covered a bit. So they did a lot of experimenting on kind of management styles and so forth. But, you know, when you talk about culture, I, I think it's important to get back to, you know, something, that, you know, from the, the way of the warrior, the Bushido, the, the kind of, samurai code, which is a culture is not a set of beliefs, it's a set of actions. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the the big mistake, you know, kind of getting back to, okay, well, why do companies think they have culture and not? I think a lot of companies have values and Mm -hmm. beliefs, but getting the whole company to act in a way consistent with those values and beliefs is a much, much harder thing to do. And that's where I think there's just a gap in terms of, uh, you know, what people want to do and then what they know how to do. Mm-hmm. And that's that's generally where, although, look, a lot of people do a lot of great things with their with their culture and nobody's culture, like nobody's culture is perfect. So I don't want to like set the bar so high that you can't achieve it. Nobody has 
cultural coherency. So let's talk about the ones, let's talk about some of the ones that are coherent and then Mm -hmm. the ones, the problems you have when they're not coherent. Well, I'll I'll give an example of one that was very coherent, but had an issue, which was Uber. Mm -hmm. Um, So Travis actually did quite a great job of defining the culture and then getting very like high degree of compliance with the culture in terms of, and the, and the big things that probably competitiveness was the biggest thing, right? Like right. everybody sure. knew like Uber was going to compete like nobody's business and like hashtag winning and all that thing. And mm-hmm. he was going to go for it. The challenge he had though, which is um, with any culture, if you're going to have a super strong emphasis on something like we're going to win at all costs, then you have to go, okay, well, is that really true or is there a cost at which we're not going to win? Mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, and like, what are your Apparently ethics? Not yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your ethics and are they explicit? And mm-hmm. I think like in his mind, I'm sure there was a line, but he didn't, whatever that was, he didn't say it or, and he didn't say it clearly to the company. And so when it got down to the individual level and people were making their own decisions and he wasn't there, that's when you get like an so HR person. Winning was the only thing. Yeah, I mean, if you just think about an HR person getting a sexual harassment complaint in writing from a new employee her first day in the job with like the text snapshotted where she got harassed Mm -hmm. and going, okay, no, like we're not going to do anything about that. We're not going to investigate it because he's a high-performing manager. Okay, first of all, that's like clearly illegal. Mm -hmm. And then like why would, you know, there's no way Travis wanted him to do that. But if winning is the emphasis and it's that strong in the culture and you don't have a line, then that's when you start to get into trouble. And it's a, it's not actually that um, hard a mistake to make. You know, I've seen that it's it's been made at many companies before. I think Enron is another great example of where like mm-hmm. they let that run away. This, uh, it started and, well, off yeah. with a good quality. Yeah, it's, uh, they had very competitiveness, but then had no guardrails. Around they it. they didn't have a guardrail, and he, this is a uh, and the, the counterexample of that in the book is, um, you know, in the Haitian Revolution, Toussaint Louverture. He was so he's fighting a slave revolt. Um, he's got a slave army, and one of the things, one of the ways you incent the slave army or any army, you know, the British army, the the French army, or the Spanish army, who are also fighting in the colony at the time is you let them pillage, right? Like, you know, you win, you get the you get the bounty, you get the booty, you get mm-hmm. the whole thing. And he said, look, he made a rule because of what he was trying to do culturally. He said, look, when we win, we're not going to pillage. And uh, which took everybody's surprise. And he said, because we're fighting for liberty. And if liberty is the goal, then you can't get liberty by taking people's liberty. And that cultural tenet ended up having a lot of dividends that ended up being worth much more than what the soldiers would have collected in terms of an incentive, including the white women in Haiti supported Toussaint against the European forces, mm-hmm. which you would never, ever guess would happen, but he was the only one not raping and pillaging them. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And that that support actually enabled a lot of other follow-on victories. Right. And so what you're talking about is having a quality, whatever your cultural mm-hmm. quality is, and then we're tweaking it around the edges, correct? Yeah, well, there's always a dark side. Right. <laughs> every, everybody, you know, has got a value. I'll give you another kind of dark side. So um, uh, my friend, Stuart Butterfield, who's very good on culture. Yeah. Had, Slack. Yeah, Flicker Slack. before this. Flicker, yes, exactly. You know, he had a 
cultural uh, value, empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so not that far into Slack, uh, somebody gets a bad review from their manager and they go, you're in violation of the culture. You're not being very empathetic. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not what <laughs> Stuart meant, of course, but you have to be careful about how you define things. Are they clear enough? Are they specific enough? And do they account for the kind of counterexample? And in the samurai code, for example, the politeness is a huge, huge thing. And the meaning is very deep. It's the best way to show love and respect for somebody. Mm-hmm. So it, it has great power behind it. But it says, look, politeness without honesty is empty. Like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And so you haven't gotten anywhere if you're just lying and making somebody feel good. That That's right. not what it is. It's this other thing. And so you kind of have to get much deeper, even in the definitional phase on some of these things to make them work. And when you think about that idea, is so in the case of Uber, it's competitiveness. In the case of Slack, it's empathy or one of the larger mm-hmm. tenants that they have of culture. Well, how, not anymore. Yeah. They've had to move away from that a bit. Yeah. So yeah. how do you pick which one is yours? And how, how talk about picking... The strategy, the company, and the culture really need to kind of go together. Um, so a great example of this is Amazon is super cheap culturally. Like mm-hmm. they're yeah, like all about being I cheap. I was there. The yeah, door. The door, blah. all that stuff, right? Yeah. There weren't that, makes that many sense doors, for, just so you know. Yeah, yeah. But it was just, it was just a, was a door. to let you know not mm-hmm. to waste any money. And uh, the thing about that is it made total sense because they want to be the low, they want to be the price leader on everything. Right. That's part of the the business strategy. Apple, (laughs) um, like there's no way that would make sense for them as a cultural value because, you know, they built a, whatever, a $5 billion campus and they've got uh, how much the doorknobs cost, but Mm -hmm. they're a lot. And they're nice doorknobs. Beautiful, gorgeous, the best. (laughs) Um, But that makes sense for Apple because Apple's about high design. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so Apple's values support or Apple's culture needs to support that. And, you know, you look at it and Apple's never going to undercut Amazon on price and Amazon's never going to build a product as beautiful as Apple's products Mm because culturally they can't, but that's fine because those go without business strategy. So I do think... You know, it's easy to make, you don't just pick like, here are the cultural things that I like. (laughs) You know, I'm cheap, so I want a cheap culture. Like, that's not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is say, okay, like, what is our strategy and how do we need to behave over the long term in a way that's differentiated from the competition that's going to help us win. Talk about the differentiation, because I think people Mm -hmm. don't understand how, uh, some people call them, there's lots of different ways to differentiate, which I sometimes call moats, but you wouldn't call delivery for Amazon a cultural thing. Well, I think that, uh, you know, kind of... Although it's a moat, right? Yes. No, it's a moat, but like not everything is culture. Right. And I would have to think about that to say, okay, do they have something in the culture that supports them being like best on delivery? Serving customers. But oh, the customer obsession, obsession for sure. Obsession, yeah. Yeah, where they always start with the customer and work their way back and they take responsibility for the entire experience, right? Like right. they're not just saying, okay, like, you know, did we ship you your thing? Right. You know, that, that, that's certainly consistent with their cultural mindset. But just, you know, in terms of different, I, I give you an example from us, right? So we come into venture capital. Every venture capital firm would say, oh, we love founders. We, we respect founders. Yeah. You know, we love them. They're the best. But like, do they act like that? And it's very hard to act like that as a venture capital firm because I've got the money. You want the money. 
Yeah. And anytime there's a relationship like that, you yeah. know who's the, you know, who's the big person, who's the little person, right? right? Except and once they get the money. Yeah. Then well, you lose the well, power. <laughs> that's a little different. But in venture capital, right, like you can see that in the behavior because you, you're an entrepreneur, you go to meet with a venture capitalist, raise money, they're 30 minutes late. You know, they ghost you like this famous thing in Silicon Valley, like you go by and get venture capital money and they don't even respond to you and so forth. Mm -hmm. So when we started the firm, one thing, you know, being ex-entrepreneurs, we were like, you know, it would be really nice if a venture capital firm was actually respectful, like not like I respect entrepreneurs, but like actually behave in that way that you're respectful and you appreciate what it means to build a company. And so we put some things in the culture to kind of achieve that, like, if you're late for a meeting with an entrepreneur, you pay $10 a minute fine. Um, and like every entrepreneur that we reject, we you you have to reject them in right, you know, clearly tell them why you didn't invest. And then we're going to survey them on the back end to see if you're doing your job. And those things that we put in place in the culture are probably our biggest differentiator today. Customer service. Yeah. Well, people go like, when, you know, when, if you deal with Andreessen Horowitz from top to bottom, from the receptionist to any GP, you're going to be treated like with respect, like you're important. And people appreciate that. And that's what they know us for more than even the deals that we've done, I would say, in the entrepreneurial community. So culture can really differentiate you if you commit to it and if you get consistency. Mm-hmm. Like when, if it's real, in other words. And then when you're finding your investments, does that apply to them too, that you want investments that are like that? Because I know you had a round or two with Travis, for example. Uh, well, you know, and <laughs> yes, we did. And like our story is slightly different than his. Yeah. I would say it's a little tricky to really figure out what the culture of a company is when we invest. Right. Um, but the one thing that we tend not to invest in, even if we like everything about it, is... If somehow during the process they're not telling us the truth or they're being deceptive, that's the biggest thing because our general experience is if you don't tell us the truth, then you're not going to tell your company the truth um, and you're not going to tell anybody the truth. And that's going to be just, even if you have great success, it ends up being bad for us because, you know, we have we have this big network where we're putting in you, you in contact with all our favorite investors, all our favorite big companies who are to buy your product, all our favorite people in the press. And so, like, if you're just constantly lying, then that's not just you, that's us. So we tend to back away from that. But it's hard, like, if you would say, would you invest in a company with a broken culture? I'd like, we probably wouldn't even know at the time of investment because it's a very mm -hmm. hard thing to understand. Right. All right, getting back to the, the, the culture people pick, talk about switching culture, like, mm -hmm. because companies do change. And oh, yes. A lot, sometimes I do think people are faded to the DNA. I think about this a lot. The other day I was thinking about a company and I thought, well, it was like that at the beginning and it's mm -hmm. not a surprise. Talk about it. That's sort of an old trope of the, the DNA at the beginning is the DNA throughout. Yeah, it is, is and it isn't. So? Well, I don't think it quite is, right? Like, so it depends how fast you grow. And by DNA, and, I mean culture, but I mean... Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of the personality right. in some way, which mm -hmm. is a little different than the culture, but I, I understand what you're saying. There's a truth to that in that, well, it tends to replicate. And this is actually, I, I would say, if you say, well, Ben, what's the biggest challenge we have in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. with inclusion? It's basically oh, that. It's the that DNA the replicating, yeah. right? Like, right. so whoever you start with, that's who you're going to end up with kind of in all kinds of ways from a kind of 
personality, culture, gender, race, like right. everything kind of follows those early employees. But one of the things that happens is if you grow really fast, you end up bringing in people from other cultures and leadership positions. And that changes the culture. Absolutely. You know, either they change you or you change them, one of the two. And generally it's the former. And so now they do evolve. But more importantly, I think companies do need to evolve their cultures as they grow. And when they don't, like it can cause them like real trouble. Actually, a, a positive example is at Facebook, the move fast and break things was a really, I, I think, important cultural marker for them in beating MySpace mm -hmm. in that they were like, okay, we're going to just outfeature these guys and build a better product. And that's what won them the market. They knew, <laughs> I think, about the time they were building the platform that that had a real downside to it. And uh, so they, they pulled that out of the culture. And I think that was smart because, you know, the culture you start with isn't necessarily the culture that you, you, need. That you need going forward. The company changes, the landscape changes, the strategy changes, and your behavior to support what you're trying to do needs to change as well. Mm -hmm. Well, talk about that. That's an interesting thing because I always found the word break really interesting. It wasn't mm -hmm. change. Yeah, well, it break... Wasn't Break was important. Break. But it was important because that was, and I talk about this in the book, yeah. that was the shock, the shocking rule. You need, in order for people to really adopt something, it's got to cause them to ask, why the hell do we have that that way? Like, mm -hmm. why did he say break things? Yeah. Right? You, you have to, if you don't stop yourself and ask yourself that, then it doesn't get burned into the culture. It doesn't get burned into your behavior. And the reason... <laughs> For saying it is, look, even if you break something, I still want you to go fast. Like that's how badly we need to mm -hmm. go fast and not make excuses and not get caught up in basically the kinds of things that will, you know, slow us down. Like we're not, there, there are no excuses on this. We're going fast. And right. that, that, that was kind of the statement. And I think at the time it made sense now. Um, once you have a big code base and you've got people building on it and using things and so forth, and then there were other implications that had nothing to do with software later right, on that right, like people right. criticize them for. But like at the time, it made sense. It, you know, it wasn't actually, like a forever value. In that case, I've come to the conclusion that they had no idea it was going. They had no idea where it was going. They're constantly surprised by the. Oh the yeah, shifting. and how how could they know? I mean, well, I'll give oh, you a different example. Could. We're gonna so, argue about that. Yeah, yeah, I'd argue. Well, just like even on like the election stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when Barack Obama got elected, and everybody wrote he the on Facebook. He used social networking. Look, Facebook got him elected, and they're like, "This is great." Bravo, Mark Zuckerberg, you got mm -hmm. Barack Obama elected. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the next thing you know, Donald Trump's elected. And they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, Donald Trump got elected because of Facebook. Right. Like, but I think Facebook more, is too powerful. It the, must the, be shut I down. I think it was more the continued hate stuff that got, that, that escalated. Yeah, no, there were a lot of things that escalated. Yeah, things right. escalated and the ability to manipulate. But that's, this is not what we're talking about here. Yes, we can yes. talk about that later. But there is a cultural question of having to, that's a culture that has had to shift. Yes. You know, yeah, in, yeah. In, especially in around its yeah. founder and around its, you know, being a sort of autocracy, really, there of, of one person and becoming a more involved group of people where there's lots of different voices. Yeah. So there's, cultures. you know, when it was all about like, what is the product that we need to build and how do we build it? You know, having everything start with Mark made tremendous sense because right. he was so great at that and, you know, such an amazing expert. But you're right, like Facebook became so successful, like their 
the ultimate victim of their own success and that they became a, a very important thing to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so once you get to that, there are other super relevant perspectives other than like what's going to be the winning product that grows the fastest, right. et cetera, like which were right. like a very simple set of goals. Yeah. And yeah. it just became more All important right. than people We're thought. talking to Ben Horowitz. He has a new book out called What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about how you deal with different cultures within a culture, which is sort of mm-hmm. happening right now in Silicon Valley. There's all kinds of fractures happening. Oh, and they yeah, have, yeah, they yeah, have yeah, a lot to do with culture when yeah. we get back. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. We're here with Ben Horowitz. Obviously, he's the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, which is one of the most influential venture firms uh, in Silicon Valley. He's also the author of several books, including his brand new book, What You Do Is Who You Are and How to Create Your Business Culture. When we're talking about things fracturing and and things Mm -hmm. changing, what's the difference of being a startup culture versus what companies are, the bigger companies, because I think they all think of themselves as startups <laughs> still, and they don't realize yes. that has to change, or they long for the days when Yeah, well, is it, you know, are you the pirate or are you the Navy? Oh, yeah, the right? pirate like, thing. And it is, uh, <laughs> it does change, thing. it does change. With the pirate? Well, Steve Jobs. Yeah, I know, but there was someone guy. the other Come day on. from a giant company, and like, we're pirates. I'm like, you're not pirates. <laughs> No, no. If you're a giant company, well, that's uh, that's no when pirates. you get into trouble. Yeah. Then you're a pirate and you're a big company. So Steve Jobs uh, had, if so, those who don't yeah. know, Steve Jobs, they used to fly a pirate flag over Apple, even if it was gigantic. And yeah. It's really it's really untoward when you're a billionaire to be a pirate. But okay. All right. But what, talk about that, like shifting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is uh, an interesting image. Um, yeah. Look, I... It's a, it's a little bit of a syndrome of the dog catching the bus, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so you, you build a company, there's very little chance that you're going to succeed. You know, you're doing everything you can, you're fighting for your life, and you have a culture that is very narrowly focused, right? Like, we've got to move this product to these customers, and we're going to, like, figure out how to do it, and we're going to have a small set of elements that gets us there. I think once you get to be, right, if you become McDonald's or... Google or anything, you know, yeah. anything of scale and size that everybody in the world is using, then all of a sudden, what is going to be important, uh, not only to the world, but to your business is going to just be very different. And so you have to change. <laughs> and and often that's a cultural change because the things that let you take the hill or take down the giant or whatever it is are not necessarily the behaviors that you as the giant should show. And actually, look, we ran into this a little bit here where, um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll blame myself, you know, like when we started out, I was like calling other, 
all the other VCs some very harsh names he and all did, these I kinds recall. of things. Yeah, but let's th- say Mark said it. Let's just <laughs> yeah, so Mark said it. Because so <laughs> anyway, he did. Yeah, he did. Uh, and you know that was kind of like, look, this is what's wrong with the industry. This is who we are, and so forth. But when we become the industry, like then at that point we have to take responsibility. We yeah. can't just keep throwing rocks at the industry. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody's gonna buy that or like that from us and it's not mm-hmm. the right thing to do. And so we have to, you know, we had to adjust the culture. We had to stop saying those things. We had to behave, you know, all that that kind of stuff. And I think that on a much bigger scale, those are the kinds of things that you have to deal with. If you look, if you're, I mean, if you're Google, like, and you've got everybody in the world who's not in China uses your search product, and then you're building like the autonomous driving product that's gonna take all the, you know, do all the driving for the world you cannot think of yourself as an upstart. Mm-hmm. You have responsibility not well, to why just Why does that persist? Because yeah. it really does. I think the, the inability, at one point I thought inability to accept responsibility like that or power, mm-hmm. it's almost like a pushing away of power. And the, yeah. wor- the wording is really interesting. And actually, Mark persists in it. We have to work on this together. And I'm like, what do you mean we? You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was an interesting, The wor- like a lot of them don't think they have power when they do have power. How do you shift that within a company? Or, and, and it's people, because I think that's where the damage is done. When you think you're small and then you're a giant breaking everything in ways you didn't recognize. So yeah, how like, do you do that? How, how do you shift it once you get to that position? Yeah, so there, there are really important markers. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, you have to make decisions that demonstrate priorities to change the culture. And um, so, you know, two examples of that were uh, one in the Haitian Revolution, after they got power, there was this question of what do you do with the plantation owners? And because the priority for Toussaint wasn't like, okay, we're not going to be revolutionaries anymore. We're going to run we're gonna govern. Haiti. Yeah, like I'm governor of Haiti. We're going to run it. And so the decision he made was like, we're not going to kill them and we're not even going to throw them in jail. What we're going to do is we're going to force them to pay their employees instead of have them be slaves. And second, I'm going to lower their taxes to facilitate that. So that was like a very shocking decision, but it set the tone of going like, we're going from revolution to governance. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot what's so happened. stone throwers and, to yeah, governing. Yeah, which is exactly kind of what you see happen on the company trajectory. And kind of a different kind of version of this was, uh, you know, Netflix, uh, when they, so they started out as the CD company, mm-hmm. um, the, or the DVD company they were delivering. Reed called it a very, uh, what was it, um, high latency, high bandwidth mm-hmm. uh, network. Um, but they, he wanted to go to streaming, and to make it to streaming, he was always worried that a pure streaming company would just come and take him out. And so to kind of change the culture of the company from this DVD business to the streaming business, one day he just said, look, the people running the DVD business, even though they're managing 100% of the revenue, are no longer invited to the executive staff meeting. And so, everybody, you know, like that's a shocking landmark decision for the company, but it made it really clear what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if you're changing the culture from the pirates to the Navy, you need to make like decisions that demonstrate that priority. Mm-hmm or nobody's gonna follow it, it's just words. Like you can't say, this is the mistake people make on culture. They say, this is our culture. This is how I dress, you know, like here's the values on the wall. None of that actually does much. Or like, we're gonna put in your performance review. Like that doesn't even do anything, it's once a year. Mm -hmm. Like nobody, 
you know, whatever. Nobody does it seriously. Mm-hmm. But like the decisions you make, the object lessons, the shocking roles, these kinds of things, that's what moves culture. And so you, you have to be committed to moving the culture. You can't just, you know, give the talk. talk. about where it didn't work. Where's the company where it didn't work? Where, where like, they didn't, cha- yeah. where, they, where they didn't change the culture? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, boy, I hate, to, I hate to name names on people, but like, I think that um, we've seen a lot of companies in Silicon Valley that kind of start out as like bottoms up enterprise, you know, kind of selling to an enterprise through a kind of consumer-like distribution. And then at some point, everybody's expecting them to go get the enterprise accounts. Mm-hmm. But that's a cultural shift. Absolutely. I can and, a dozen companies. Yeah, like that. and it's really difficult for the fact, because they're totally in their old culture. And unless they're willing to go, you know, bring in that subculture, that enterprise, so, well, Google, it's a struggle mightily with yeah. it, right? Because, and, you know. I remember my, the guy they hired. Yeah. The suit. And the whole thing was very awkward. Yeah, very, very difficult for them yeah. to do. And even, you know, they brought in my friend, Diane, who's a great enterprise mm-hmm. person, but man, like, it was, she's breaks her pick trying to like, you know, move that. And now they've got Thomas Curran and so forth. And maybe they'll get there, but that's a cultural challenge for them right. because they're googly. Right. Googly and enterprise aren't they're really the same. Yeah. That, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I'm going to call bullshit on googly now. I'm done with that. Uh, well, you don't have to, but I can do it. Googly is a weapon that you can whatever. use to kill the enterprise. Whatever. I don't care. I'm yeah. tired of that word. <laughs> anyway. Um, talk, it they, is silly word. So what do we have to do to have better cultures, because one of the things is obviously diversity and the allowance of different cultures to thrive and different mentalities. It is sort of at this point kind of an excuse like, well, we just pick people that look like us. That seems to be not very adult. <laughs> well, so it's, I, think it's, I think it's more complex than that. Um, so, so one, like I, you can have diversity in, in a monoculture, I mean, right. you, you, can, you can assimilate people into your company culture regardless of their background. I think the diversity issue is, it's partly a cultural question, but a lot of it is, uh, and this is why, um, you know, the, the chapter was Genghis Khan, Master of Inclusion. Mm-hmm. I think people are not- Explain that for the people. Thinking, yes. Uh, so, well, Genghis Khan, um, highly underrated well, leader. Well-known marauder, but go yeah, ahead. marauder. Uh, but one of the things that he did, you know, one, a huge reason, maybe the key reason for his success was uh, he kind of got rid of the old um, hierarchy, which was based on basically lineage and your birthright and mm-hmm. these kinds of things. And he replaced it with this meritocracy, which then allowed him to basically incorporate anybody as a first-class citizen into the army. And that mm-hmm. that was the key. They came in as first-class citizens, so he would find you know, the best Chinese scientists and he would bring them in and mm-hmm. and the kind of orphan kids that they had, he would adopt into his own family. So he'd make it very clear, like, we're all together on this. Um, and that kind of then informed his military strategy, which he was able to run, uh, you know, a very kind of different kind of thing where everybody was cavalry. There were no infantry, there was no supply tents because everybody was on equal footing. But the big breakthrough he had is he could see talent, even though it was coming from a Chinese person or a Turk or whoever, Mm -hmm. and he could use that talent. I think the problem that uh, most people have is they can't see talent that's not from their background or like them. So typical hiring thing is 
I know what I'm good at. I value it highly. I can test for it in an interview. And so I'm going to hire somebody like me. Mm -hmm. And then if they see somebody who's got, who's coming from a different culture, a different background, um, it's hard for, it becomes difficult for them to actually see the talent. Mm -hmm. And so I think the problem in Silicon Valley is then we go and say, okay, what we need to focus in on is race and gender. Mm -hmm. And no, that's not what you need to focus in on. What you need to focus in on is, can you see the complete talent picture? And then if you focus on race and gender and you bring those people in, and I'm sure you've spoken to many people, then they're not first-class citizens in your company. Mm -hmm. And so then you have a real diversity problem because people of no, keeping other people backgrounds there is, don't want to stay. Keeping yeah. people there is the bigger problem than getting people. Well, it's a, to me, the biggest problem is you're creating a suck-ass work environment for people like that you are purportedly trying to help, but you're not. You're just trying to get the gold sticker that says that you're not well, you know, except a bad if person. Well, if you're here, well, here's something that was, it's always interesting. When I was talking, I think it was Twitter or one of them, Mm -hmm. um, something about this is a board, which I think the board you can find more, much more of a diverse board. More diverse yeah, which, uh, it's yeah, not yeah. that hard to find a well, lot of qualified diversity people. on the board is easy because it, yeah. it doesn't really. Qualified, but there's also a lot yeah. of kinds of qualified people who can do stuff like that. But what yeah. was interesting is they said we have standards, and I said that's only uh, you all didn't do so well all together as a monoculture at that time, and so it wasn't the culture was not what kept it together. It was other things. And yeah. so what, what I wonder, like one of the things you and I had in an interview at, that got a lot of attention at many years ago about mm -hmm. that idea of bringing yeah. women and mm -hmm. more women at partners here. Now you've done that. You've mm -hmm. changed your culture. But what, what happened there? Well, Can I you changed just... the rule. Yeah. All right. So talk about what <laughs> happened because you and I had yeah. a back and forth about that. And then yeah. you got, everyone was like, what? Like when you said that, that you wouldn't hire women just because she was a woman. I think that's yeah, something. Yeah, I like, still want. Yeah. yeah. All right, but talk about. But nonetheless, you have more women partners than other firms. Yeah, than most other firms. And yeah. then, uh, and then the firm itself is fifty-two percent women. Right. So kind what of happened in that? Yeah. So um, very early on in the firm to set the culture and the the main kind of not only the culture but the brand promise was mm -hmm. we are the best place for a founder to become a CEO. Mm -hmm. And so there was a bunch of things that then went behind that promise. You know. Uh, the respect, the network. So we were going to have a network that would make you as good as any professional CEO from the perspective of the people you knew. And then the other thing was the skill set. Like, what would it take for you to learn how to do that job? And so our rule was the only way to be a GP at Andreessen Horowitz was you had to be a founder CEO from a successful technology company. Mm -hmm. And we were going to do no promotions against that. And that actually worked as a marketing thing. It didn't work internally as a cultural thing because it just turned out that one, former CEOs weren't necessarily good at teaching somebody to be a CEO. That mm -hmm. was a very hard lesson for me to learn. It took me longer than it should have. Uh, just because, you know, I was like myself, Bill Campbell, like not everybody's like that. Mm -hmm. I goofed that up. And so what happened over time was one, like that didn't work. And then the culture, though, in the firm became so strong that it, we didn't even have a need for that anymore. Mm -hmm. But the side effect, or one of the side effects, was it was just hard to find. There, there just aren't that there many aren't women who right. founded successful technology companies in Silicon Valley. And then we had, because we are 52% women, we had a lot of women on the junior side, but we didn't promote. Mm -hmm. And so I got rid of the rule. I just said, like, 
we'll just get rid of the rule and we'll see what happens. And that changed the kind of number of GPs we had, like pretty fast. And what, what caused like, you to do that? You just were like, this isn't working or? Yeah, well, like, I mean, at the same time, we like got rid of a few GPs too, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it wasn't working on multiple levels. Uh, and the general idea, the cultural idea was good, which is like, we need a firm that culturally is set up to help a founder be a CEO. But like that part didn't work. And like it caused, as a side effect of that, we had the other issue. But I had to get rid of the rule because there was no way, like you couldn't do also one without the other. They went together. Right, right. So you did what you said you weren't going to do, but you did it in a different way. It doesn't, it's... Right, it, yeah, like I wasn't going to, I will never... I don't mean to say you're yeah. going to hire an unqualified. I never meant that. No, no, it's, meant, it's not unqualified. Right. So I think it's really important to, and this is the, the important distinction that people miss. It's mm -hmm. what is your criteria for the job? <laughs> and... Everybody, in my view, well, everybody here is always hired on the exact same criteria. We have no criteria for gender or race, and we will never, as long as I'm alive, do that. Because if we do, then you come in as a second-class citizen. And that I'll never have. I'd rather have all Chinese people or whatever than have second-class citizens here. However, the criteria, you got to check the criteria. Right. And what I always say is, like, people say, well, we're not going to lower the bar. We have a standard. But it's like... But have you widened the bar enough to see the whole talent field? Right. That's what I mean. Yeah, um, that's, and that's... Uh, that's not lowering it. It's no, it's just, widening. Yeah. Widening. It, well, look, oh, I'll give you the, the example. I, I think I may have given you this example before, but it's such a good example. I'll give it to you. Like when we started, every department was kind of all mm -hmm. like, you know, Frank had all, Frank Chen had all Asians working for him mm -hmm. and Margaret yeah. had all women working for her right. and like Scott Cooper had all investment bankers mm -hmm. and like it's just... All little Scots. All mm -hmm. little Scots. Like that's right. how, and that's how it always goes. And so, you know, when we started looking at it, the first person I talked to was Margaret. I said, Margaret, like, what is your criteria where men always fail this interview? And she mm -hmm. was like, helpfulness. And I was like, well... Fuck me. <laughs> like, I don't know any helpful men. Like, that mm -hmm. makes sense. But the, the more important insight from that is we were a services firm. Mm -hmm. What job opening should not have helpfulness as a criteria? Right. We weren't seeing the talent. Yeah. I wasn't seeing it. Like, I, I, I was blind to that talent. I couldn't see it. I didn't even know it existed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we know how to interview for that. Mm -hmm. And if you just interview for helpfulness, like your composition of men and women right. will change a lot because right. it's a criteria that women do better on that just happens to be the thing. That may sound sexist, but like that's an, uh, you know, like that's, that's what so, we've observed, but that's um, what I mean by widening the bar. So last question, if you had to give two things that people must do for their culture and two things to avoid, can you do that? Two things that you must do would be, one, you must have people bump into it daily like mm -hmm. if if they're not re and this is this was the Agreed. the brilliance of move fast and break things that issues but like it was you couldn't avoid it at facebook there's a big sign on the wall but that wasn't it it was just like such a weird concept like you and know, it was it, a real it, big sign yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> giant yeah <laughs> but it's got to be something like that it can't be like oh at your 12-month performance review we'll like see how you're a cultural fit mm -hmm. like that doesn't do anything i would so say daily reminder I think daily reminder. The second thing is, and we do this here, is before a new employee comes on board, um, before they sign their offer letter, you should make them read and agree to your cultural document, whatever that is. Um, because you want people to be signed up to the culture coming in and know that, like, no, day one, I'm walking into this 
you know, and either if I don't like it, I shouldn't even take this job. And I think that's that's really critical. Look, the things that I wouldn't do are one, I wouldn't have an offsite and have everybody get together and put all their ideas for the culture on the wall and then like <laughs> take all 47 stupid ideas. Cause like it's got, a, it, it's a strategic, important, yeah. like it's gotta be a vision that aligns with the strategy and it has to be small enough so that you can implement it. You uh -huh. can expand it over time, but like the worst culture in the world is the hypocrisy, right? Yeah. Like we have these values, we don't do them. Right. Like nobody wants to work in a place like yeah. that. And so don't do that. And then I, I would say the the worst thing in any company culture is if you get rewarded for not caring. So you've got one employee who's working really hard, doing their work, coming up with great ideas for the company, and they can't get a decision made, like they can't get anything done because they're stuck because your managers are off busy doing something else then they get punished for caring. And then the person who is playing video games all day, like they get rewarded for not caring. And that's the worst thing in a culture. 100%. And that's that's when companies go bad, <laughs> like yeah. really bad. Yeah. Like we see companies get, you know, they get so powerful that like they've got to change, but they're still high quality companies. There are companies in Silicon Valley that have gone completely bad where, you know, it's just yep. miserable to be around them. Yep, yep, I know what you mean. Ben, this is really great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes. Ben's book is called What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. Ben Horowitz, who is a very well-known venture capitalist in his spare time when he's not writing books. What's yes. your next book about? Yeah, no, that's it. That's it? No, <laughs> really? Done. You always I'm say done. that. No, How done. many books have you written? They're just two. This just is two? Just the There's one. one more in you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, just don't like, know. fuck that you. Maybe a blog post. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I really appreciate you coming on the show and I'd love to have you back. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Erica Anderson at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Ben, where can people find you and the book online? Well, it is online at Amazon.com, right. Barnes & Noble, wherever fine right. books are sold. And you? And I am, they can find me at a16c.com. All right. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. The special thanks to Andreessen Horowitz for letting us use their podcast studio for this taping. You can find the A16Z podcast pretty much everywhere, right, Ben? Yes. Are you the host? Everywhere. Uh, Sonal's host. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, it's a very good podcast, actually. Yeah, so she's it's great. Like, it's, you know what's really good about it? Some of the venture capital podcasts are like, aren't you smart? You know those ones? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. All, it's a very good podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, she, she would never helpful. do that. Yeah. No. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.